0: You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agio.net/slash/talks. So, good evening and welcome. My name's Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs. And uh, I think Dennis Reed probably needs little introduction. Do you want to let them gather in a bit? His voice is louder than mine, so you'll be able to hear him. Dennis was formerly the chief curator here at the AGO for many years. He's a professor at University of Toronto and guest curator for this exhibition. So he's going to lead us through on a, on a, a talk that will last about an hour. There are stools in the corner if anybody wants one, and sometimes it helps... If some people are sitting down and others standing behind, it helps everybody to be able to hear as well. Um, may I just say, as we're going through in a group, when you're listening to somebody, sometimes it's. Uh, I'll get Dennis to repeat it in a second, but please try and stay at least a meter away from the art and be careful if you're backing onto some art. It's very easy to, to back onto it. So, Dennis, do you want to say
1: okay. that again? Okay. Now, class. So try to stick together, you know, because we're going to move through the exhibition. And uh, what Jillian was just saying is really important. Always watch your backs. It's so easy to, with some of the big ones particularly, to back into a painting and really do it damage. So be really careful. And if you don't mind, anybody with bags, belly bags tonight, okay? Nothing on the back, okay? So again, you don't do the accidental bump it in. this is going to be very informal, and uh, I'm going to leave some time at the end for, uh, for questions, if you uh, have any questions when it's all done. Um, a little bit about the, how the exhibition happened. Back many years ago, a number of years ago, uh, the AGO decided that it should be collecting certain key artists in depth and in breadth. And by that I mean major works by them, of course, but also... A real sense of of their production of their of the, how their how their career uh, unfolded, and, uh, and if possible to get any papers that they may have that would that would also help us understand how they worked and, and so on, and uh, with the idea that the AGO would become the study center then for those uh, for those key artists and so Betty Goodwin was the first one, uh, Patterson Ewan was the next one, uh, Greg Kernow was the next one and Jack Chambers is the fourth one in that group, in that series. And uh, for each one of them, um, I mean, I'll be frank with you, there was a deal done with the estate and, or with the artist, part purchase, part donation, and uh, in order to maximize the, uh, the collection. And at the same time, a commitment to do a major publication. And uh, so that, and that publication is meant to be the, the to go to place for uh, understanding that, uh, that particular artist. So with Jack Chambers, uh, who died, unfortunately, much too early in, 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 in 1978, um, it was only when Olga, his wife, died um, that uh, the boys um, then decided to sell the family home, which is where the studio had been, and uh, had to face, you know, okay, this pile of, of art and pile of boxes full of photographs and writing and, you know, on and on. And um, we were in touch with them, and and uh, went and, and worked with them, and a part purchase, part donation was made. The the purchase part, uh, funded um, by some supporters of the gallery, in, in a way that was extremely important to the to the AGO. So the AGO now has the largest collection anywhere of Jack Chambers' work, and this exhibition, this exhibition is meant to use that work to. I was going to say explain, but you can hardly explain somebody like Jack Chambers, to elucidate um, the career of this uh, quite incredible artist. Um, The um, publication is um, very substantial. I hope you have a chance to look at it and maybe even buy it. It's 240 pages and uh, a number of essays. We decided, as we did with all the the other three before, that we wouldn't do a kind of traditional retrospective in a chronological order because the idea as I said was to showcase the AGO collection and so in each instance um there were have no loans were were made from other institutions and uh in this case there are 12 loans and they're all from private individuals i think with the hope that they may um you know if not stay, at least later at some point, come to the AGO. And um, so it's not, you know, there are some key things that aren't here, you know, they're in the Collection of Museum London or the National Gallery or Montreal Museum of Fine Arts and so on. And um, so we decided that, that again, as we did with the other exhibitions, uh, with the colonel particularly, that uh, uh, we would um, do it from a, um, the point of view of themes. Themes that were critical, we feel are critical to understanding how Jack worked and what's in the work. And um, so we chose four themes after a lot of thought. Um, Those themes are light, place, spirit, and time. So those are the four things. Now you would find all four of those themes in anything he made. But you find one more strongly, you know, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the exhibition's been organized that way. And as you go through, you're going to see there's a what what, what we call the keystone work on a distinguished, distinguished wall with the theme in each of the sections, and you'll see that as we go through. And um, we got a little worried as we started to get into it because. most of you don't know this because you're probably big fans of the 401 towards London or Sunday morning number two, or you know you 've got that work that you know is Jack to you, but um, even though his career was relatively short, there are very distinct periods. you know he really changes quite radically from one phase to the next through his career, and of course, he was an amazing filmmaker and um, so um we worried at one point. We thought, God, this is going to be like a five-man show, you know, and uh, for people coming in when it's all arranged thematically, and uh, so we decided that at the beginning here, we would set up this this area that um, identifies each of the kind of phases of his of his work. So, um, and we also very carefully picked this very early um, self-portrait. So slick Jack. You know, he's going to have his eyes on you. All the way through. Don't forget that. So this was painted, and I always have to check the exact date, I'm sorry. But uh, this was painted in 1951. So this was uh, before he, he had gone to Europe. Um, Jack, early along, decided he was going to be an artist and, uh, in London, Ontario. And so he studied first at Beale Tech. So sort of like Central Tech. And uh, where they had an art program, and uh, he studied there and, and, and did that art program, and uh, then he decided that he would go to the University of Western Ontario, and uh, he went there, lasted one year, and uh, bailed out, and um, decided that he would—he'd um, heard about Mexico as being a place where you could really study art, you know, and and, um, and there were strong Canadian collections with San Miguel Allende. And with the art school there. And so Jack made his way down to Mexico. He didn't get any further than Mexico City. And that's where he enrolled in the, in the fine art school there. Um, did a term. Didn't like it much. Didn't think it was sufficient. And uh, knocked it off. Came back to London again. Then he went to Quebec City for eight months. And just sort of hung out to be an artiste. And, and uh, see what the life was like. Convinced himself that it's, it's what he wanted to be and um, decided to go to Europe. And um, during this early f- phase, though, uh, he paints three self-portraits, and we have them in different spots around the show, as you'll see. And so this was done after he got back from Mexico, but before he goes to Europe. And when you have your chance to walk by and have a look at it, you'll see that he was, had the talent, you know, right here. I mean, he just had that incredible capacity right off the bat. These self-portraits... We're done in his bedroom, and um, standing in front of a mirror. And so, although a lot of people look at this and think it's kind of I don't know, like a quattrocento, uh, you know, kind of frame within a frame or something like that. No, it's Jack standing in front of his mirror um, and um, doing a sketch, and then from that, doing the portrait afterwards. He does go to Spain. He ends up spending eight years in Spain. And um, there's a, well, a story I'll tell right up here when I've got you all together. Um, when he goes to Europe, he uh, takes a boat from New York and um, crossed at Naples. And on the boat he meets a, a couple who are, from, um, who are originally from um, Austria. And um, so he kind of, after they land in Naples, he tags along with them to Austria and um, Bavaria and kind of enjoys that. And then he makes his way back through Europe. And he's clearly not, at, hasn't got a clue of what he's, where he's going or why. And um, anyways, he, uh, at a certain point, he's coming through southern France. And there's a name of a village that he's in. And he kind of recognizes that. And he says, isn't this where Picasso lives? And uh, so he, he checks his guidebook, and sure enough, that's where Picasso lives. And so he finds Picasso's house, and there it is, and there's a big gate. And uh, so he hops over the fence and uh, goes up to the door, bangs in the door. Picasso opens the door. Jack says, oh, I'm a young Canadian, and I want to study art. Where should I study art? And Picasso looks at him and says, "Well, oh, Barcelona. Of course, and um, so Jack says, "Fine." Off he goes to Barcelona, and uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't connect, and ends up in Madrid. Ends up at the uh, Royal Academy in Madrid, studying there, and meets an Argentinian woman of, of Spanish descent um, living there, Olga, and um, ends up buying a flat, in fact, in Madrid, and uh, you know is going to stay. Then in 61, he gets a uh, call, late 60, a call that his mother is, is dying. He has cancer. So he goes back to London, just thinking he's going back to check on her, and um, <clears throat> had never felt he belonged in Spain. He, you know he, 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 he always struggled with that. He had a strong sense of identity and knew that it linked with the environment and so on, and it wasn't working for him in, in Spain, though he struggled, struggled, struggled. Again, we'll talk about it as we go through. Um, but he, um, back in London again, connects with his English prof from UWO, Ross Woodman, who he would befriended when he was, uh, in, did his one year. And um, Again, I'll talk about that a little bit later on, but anyways, feels the roots starting to grow in, and decides, OK, I'm going to stay. Goes back to Spain, to Madrid. Talks Olga into emigrating. Sells the flat. She comes back in 63. They marry. start having kids. They have two boys. And rest of story. And again, we'll get back to that. <clears throat> so you've got an eight-year period of, of work in Spain. And again, we're going to see that it, it you know, it, it's work that evolves from one form to another, but it's essentially focused on surrealism. There were two things that he was pursuing very much, I think, in Europe, and one was um, a mastery of the academic tradition, because he saw that as being essential to being an artist. And uh, so it was all about, you know, going to the to the um, um, National Gallery in 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 Madrid. And, um, you know, looking at the old masters and, you know, we have lots of drawings that he did based on those and so on. Again, in a few minutes we'll see how that worked through. But then he quite quickly gets into a kind of surrealism. And the work right behind you here, and I'm going to slip in here so I can address it. Watch your backs, please. It's from near the end of the Spanish period. This one's 1961, so it is right at the very end. It's his last... Uh, months in Spain, in fact, before he, he comes back to London. And uh, this is called the slaughter of the lamb. And um, it's, um, it's, of course, the Easter ritual slaughter, which was a very big deal in Spain. So hundreds, if not thousands of lambs are slaughtered in a public um, way as part of the celebration of the um, death and rebirth of Christ. And so the blood of the lamb you know, has an extremely uh, important uh, spiritual uh, dimension and you can see the lamb here, right, little tongue and so on, and the blood, you know, which is, and it all starts to get really interesting, doesn't it, because the blood is almost like a seed as as well, or, you know, or pollen or something. It seems to be reviving and vivifying this whole lower area here. Lots of other strange creatures. There's a, a strange kind of, either another lamb or a dog-like creature over here. Um, you've got um, a dragon floating up in the sky here. Um, there's a huge great big dragon right across the whole top. This, 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 whole, this whole landscape here becomes a dragon down here. Um, you've got jellyfish and, and uh, other sort of sea-like creatures. You've got something that looks like a peacock here. And then flowers and seeds popping. So it's that whole sense of the cycle of 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 life and death, making life again and fructification and you know so on etc. That um, one of the themes again that just sort of uh, persists right through. <clears throat> when he gets back to London, he uh, his earliest work and again we'll see some later um, follows on this, and then he starts moving into another phase where um, it still has a kind of a surrealist element, but he's he becomes very involved with time. And there's that whole section uh, connected to that. And, um, well, again, it's easier to talk about when standing in front of it, but uh, it's a kind of like um, stop action almost, you know? And uh, so one person, you know, in three different positions, that kind of thing. Then he moves into what he called his silver paintings, and this is in the mid-'60s. And the silver paintings... um, um, this one is called, uh, this one's from 1966. It's called Three Pages in Time. Well, it's actually three images from Time magazine, right? But he also meant time, right, in the, in the, in the, in the big sense. And um, <clears throat> I think what he liked about the whole idea of the silver paintings is that it's almost like a negative, a filmic negative. So you get this kind of, as you walk past it, and particularly if it's sunlight shining on it, um, you get this incredible back and, you know, back and forth between the negative and the positive happening. It's very, very striking. And, um, well, again, I'll talk more about these as we get in and look at more of them later on. At this point in the mid-60s, he starts working making films, what we at the time called underground films, and, uh, and then they became called personal films. And, and uh, um <clears throat> it was his films that really took off, in fact. And he ended up... Um, by the later 60s, having a huge reputation in that area in the States and in the, in the UK and in Europe. And Stan Brackage at the end of the 60s, and he's continued to say it ever since, said, Jack Chambers is one of the greatest filmmakers of the 20th century. And so that's really something coming from Stan Brackage. Um, this is a clip from a film called Circle. And um, it, um, Circle is made up it's um, giving just an idea of what his films were about, how he, how he structured them. Um, they were what we at the time called structural films in the sense that they, were, they always had a kind of a very clear pattern to them. And uh, in the case of Circle, he took a, f- a camera and he put it in his backyard right beside the back door and aimed it out into the yard and put a timer on it so that it would come on for about eight seconds every day at exactly the same time, and he left it there for a year. And so the film is, is you sitting there watching a camera that doesn't move, but that is about constant change over this 12-month period, day by day by day by day. So, of course, the weather changes, and the leaves grow, and they fall, and the, you know... Uh, the kid's bike gets left out. The laundry's up. The laundry's down. You know, I mean, it just this every aspect of change in the, in, in, that he experienced in his backyard is in this film, and he he sort of starts it off with uh, found pieces about setting up a film, and he ends it with these incredible clips that uh, of a man holding a bird, letting the bird go, and you know, flying. So that whole idea of the circle being completed. Then in the about. 67, 68, he starts changing again, and he moves into a mode in the late 60s that he called initially perceptual realism, but ends up calling simply perceptualism. And um, th- this was was work that, that was always based on a photograph. So he would go to great lengths, and again, we've got them all in cases in here, so you have a chance to look at some of this, uh, to Create the photographic image that is what he wants, and then he <laughs> graphs it all off, and then graphs his support canvas or board <laughs> support, and then recreates essentially that photograph in paint, and um, and of course bringing something more to it, um, so it ends up being just this amazing, amazing uh, kind of uh, image. He was he was a very very intellectual man in, in many ways, and um, although a very complicated man, very complex man. And um, he, um, he believed, in a philosophical sense, that everything we understand, all our knowledge, everything, comes in through the eyes. So perception is the key To our understanding of absolutely everything in the universe. And um, so that's what he's grasping. And he believed he was conveying through these perceptual paintings. That um, a profound level of understanding that comes in through the eyes. It was something that he had seen in real life. And then he had captured with a camera image, and then he translates into a work of art. Okay, well, let's move on through. And I'm gonna ask if you could, you know, stay fairly close to me again, if you don't mind, as we, as we move in. So this is, the, uh, this is the keystone work for light. And um, it's a work called Meadow, and uh, dates from 1972 to 1976. Four years working on this. Now, it wasn't the only thing he was working on during those four years, but nonetheless, it gives you an idea of that, you know, what, what goes into these. He, um, you're going to notice with a lot of the paintings, and particularly during this period of the sort of early 70s, um, there's this uh, texture. And uh, now these are often, most of these are painted on, on board, on plywood. um, But he felt that this texture did two things. First of all, it gave it a sense of authority because it was like a fresco or, you know, it had that sense of, you know, being something there forever. But he also, I think, was drawn to it because it picks up the light in a way that's completely arbitrary in relation to the image. So this texture has nothing to do with the image. But it picks up the light and keeps it moving and active, and, and uh, around the uh, and keeps your eye, you know, moving around as much as possible. And it, um, yeah, I'm I'm not going to. We'll be here for hours if I spend a lot of time in each painting. So uh, I'm going to try to keep moving through. I'll ask you just. You don't need to get up. You just need to turn a little bit and look at this one here. So this is a painting. This is 1957. Uh, this is called Fiesta, and uh, done in Spain. And I think it's a, a great example of how he's, you know, he's looking at, um, you know, the old masters and um, learning everything he can about anatomy, and but, but mainly about, again, how light informs form and articulates form, right? And... Um, so this is uh, you know just a very uh, ordinary kind of domestic scene on a on a uh, uh, um, what do they call them balcony. a balcony of course a balcony in, in, uh, in Madrid um, and uh, but during the siesta period which is sacred in Spain you know and after lunch sleep all afternoon and. Um, but you can see how he picks up on things that, again, you see in some of the 15th, 16th century, 16th century paintings particularly, uh, 16th and 17th century paintings, that kind of uh, detail. This is a painting, too. It has a kind of a curious little story to it because it was... Um, this was a private collection, but lent to the exhibition. And um, in 1957, um, in Madrid, he decided he would... Uh, see if he could get into the Interior Society of Artists' annual exhibition. And uh, so he uh, shipped this over from Madrid to Toronto, to the Art Gallery of Toronto, as it was called then, and um, where the OSA exhibition was, and it was accepted. So this hung in the Art Gallery of Toronto um, in 1957. Didn't sell, and so faced with trying to ship it back to Madrid, he got in touch with a friend in London, Ontario, and said, would you like to have it, You know, and gave it to her. And she, in turn, gave it to her sister, and it's her sister who lent it to the exhibition. So, and it had never been seen in public between that showing in 57 and now. And uh, then the other thing that we find really interesting about it is we always wondered what, you know, this mark on the middle, and what we think now is that, in fact, it's a burlap bag. And uh, he didn't have a lot of money, and uh, he wanted the texture, and uh, so he uh, used a burlap bag and opened it up, and uh, that's where the fold was, and, you know... It works. (laughs) What works, right? I'm going to talk a little bit now about these photographs here. So this gives you a sense of how he worked with the photo, uh, you know, with the, uh, sorry, the perceptual uh, realist paintings. So he would take photograph, photographs, photograph, photographs of, of the place that he was interested in, the place that had given him a a real, wow, you know, at, at a certain point. And, um, and then finally, out of one of them, he decides, okay, that's the one that's got it. And um, then he... I'm sorry, that's probably not exactly the one. We weren't able to locate exactly the one, but you get the impression anyways. And then he, in this case, combined two, finally, to get the right sky effect. But then that's the one he actually worked from for that Lake Huron painting that's just at the the entrance there. And um, so this is at Port Stanley. No, it's not Port Stanley at um, Bayfield um, on Lake Huron and uh, with the bluffs lake all down on this side. He's on the lake side here. So just an incredible, incredible kind of process, as I say, that he goes through to to achieve this. Then the other, this is where I'm going to talk now. Olga and uh, Jack had Children pretty quickly. Um, young John came along very soon, and uh, then young Diego, and um, they had this lovely little home in, in uh, North London, uh, just above the Springfield, P- not Springfield Park. I forget what the name oh, of the big park. Springbank Park. Uh, I'm sorry. Given Park. Yes, right. Gibbons park in the University. That's right. Exactly. Yep, and um, so they. Um, had this wonderful little suburban home. I've had, I was blessed in being a friend of Jack's back in the late 60s, early 70s, and visited many, many times, and, and um, it was always, always a treat. Um, he did this whole series of paintings, and we're going to see a couple that are in, in, the, in, the, in the manor. Um, and um, so the perceptual realist paintings, there are these landscapes, and these, again, are all sort of in the, you know, from the late 60s through the 70s. And then there are um, these scenes of family life. I think of them as scenes of family bliss. You know, I mean, it's just those magic moments that, uh, you know, that we all all harbor. And um, um, so here the two kids are watching TV Sunday morning. And um, obviously it's the holiday season. You've got some Christmas decorations hanging in the window here. You've got the neighbor's Uh, Evergreen um, standing in it for a Christmas tree. Uh, You've also got this very uh, curious thing happening in the corner, down here in the bottom, the teddy bear and the other toy lying there. And many people speculate that it's also like a crucifixion somehow, eh? And and um, and again, as we get into it a little bit more, you're going to see that the spiritual element does come in in the strangest ways in these paintings. That there is something sacred. You know about uh, about his understanding of this family situation. Lovely Greg Colonel print, the hockey stick print, hanging on the wall here. His buddy. Um, Can you work from photos on the. Yep, and things? right over here. Oh, wonderful. Okay, here they are, and uh, so again, you know, little Polaroid camera, bum 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 bum, and um, and then blowing up uh, the chosen ones. Um, and this is the one that he uses, but he didn't quite like the way Diego was sitting in this one. So he he used another one for the Diego figure. And he combines the two together. There's some more over there that um, relating to another one of the paintings from that series. So light, as I said permeates everything, right, all the way through his work. So here's uh, a silver painting, it was just before the silver paintings really take hold. This is called DAFS. and um, you can see that although it's not, you know, it's almost abstract in its, in its, in its own way, um, is nonetheless all about, you know, this is about, this has such a strange shape because it's a shadow, right, and when you start to deconstruct the image, you realize it's, it's all completely about light. Or then you have um, Tulips with Colour Options, this incredible silver painting here, which again, you know, all of the light qualities in the silver paintings comes out. And behind you here, um, he travelled to India, and I'll come back to that in a a while, in 75 and in 77. In 75, these drawings were done then, and you can see they're just amazing. I mean, you're going to have to all come back and, you know, look at the show more closely but just amazing in the in the detail and and, and, and again all about light. And um, and then over here the trip to india 77 in and he's using pastels at that point. And again it's the suffusion of light that uh, that uh, comes through uh, completely. Could I ask you about the silver paint is that the regular aluminum house paint? And yes. Yeah. Sprayed on. Which he regretted later. But well, he didn't wear a mask. Exactly. Yeah. I'll do my very best. I know it's exhausting to project very well. Yeah. So I'm going to also, I'm not going to take you into the film space, but we have a space here in the center in which all of his films are being run all day long, and they are on a program, and there's a program posted. So you can just go in and sit down and watch whatever is on, or you can decide, okay, I'm going to come back and watch um, 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 The Heart of London. Or I'm going to come back and watch, you know, one of the other films. And I really, really recommend that you do, because again, the films relate to everything else in the room, and just, you know, just there's this incredible unity in his in his work. We're going to move on now to the theme of place. And the keystone work for place is, uh, I think, the touchstone work for almost everybody when it comes to uh, Jack Chambers. This is the work in the collection of the AGO that they all know. Uh, It's almost always hanging, and uh, everybody thinks, oh, that speaks, and uh, that's Jack. Um, Again, just very quickly, um, and I think it'll give you a sense of of how he worked. This is very early along, and and this, uh, he starts this in 67, I'm sorry, 68. So it's painted 68, 69, and um, he um, he was on his way into Toronto for a meeting with his dealer Av Isaacs, um, one, early one morning. And uh, if you know London at all, you know you, you you drive out of the city and then you have to go over the overpass in order to get to the right, you know, the other side in order to go uh, east uh, on the 401. And uh, London's on the north side of the 401, and um, so doing this, you know, going over the overpass and just about ready to turn onto the, you know, the road down in. He looks up in his rearview mirror and as he described it later, it was, oh, wow. Just one of those moments when, you know, what he saw reflected was just like, oh. so charged with meaning, so charged with significance about place, but about so many other things as well. So, of course, he had to go in for his meeting, and uh, didn't get back till late that night. But the next morning, he's up, and he's out, and again, we'll have a look in a minute at some of the photographs. And um, out there on the 401 with his camera, shoot, 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 shoot. And uh, finally comes up with this that captures that moment for him. And, I mean, it is phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, it just, I, I can't begin to deconstruct it. It's just so incredible. I was so moved by John Scott's response to it. And uh, we have four um, people who might surprise you that, uh, that they are fans of Jack Chambers. And um, they're in the little back room just as you go into the... Into the, uh, into the um, um, galleria. And um, John... Is I don't know if you, do you all know John Scott's work. I think many of you would, but if you don't, look him up. Um, fascinating artist, and um, I ran into him one day, and, and he says, "What are you doing?" Dan? I said, "Oh, I'm working on a Jack Chambers' show." He said, "Oh, Jack Chambers! God, I just love that guy's work. The 401, I just you know." I said, "Okay, John, uh, tell me more." Eh? And and uh, so we got together, we did a little interview, and and uh, ended up distilling it to a little paragraph. But uh, essentially, what it was was, was uh, John was from Windsor, Ontario, and before he was even interested in art, uh, you know, he'd be in Toronto, and um, but uh, and he happened to come to the Art Gallery of Ontario at one point, and uh, he saw this painting. And he said, Holy shit! I know where that is. You're And uh, so from then on, it was his touchstone because, as, as he put it, it's like the freedom highway. And um, so it, it uh, so this was, he would, out, he, he and his buddies would hitchhike back and forth between Toronto and, and, and uh, London. I'm sorry, Toronto and Windsor. And, uh, you know, this was halfway to Windsor, halfway to Toronto. So this was the magic point. And, uh, and as, as he also said, sometimes we'd go beyond Windsor and on on to San Francisco. And so it, you know, it just like it was limitless in terms of what it would, uh, it would allow so I think everybody, of course, brings their own understandings and meanings. Yeah?
0: Could you talk a little bit about the conservation on a piece like this over the years? Like what? Well, just what kind of conservation has been needed.
1: No. Not nothing? No, no. Was down last week it changed. Eh? What? This painting was down last week. Because of a leak in the roof. Oh. Yeah.
0: There seems to be quite a large wrinkle
1: across this. It's, it's two panels. It's wood. Oh. So it's, uh, you know, he's used uh, mahogany uh, plywood and uh, done his best. Okay, right over here, if you could turn around and open up a bit. I a question about how he, was he selling his art when he went to Europe? Is that how he afforded to go to Europe? I'll talk about that as we go through. So, um, so just as he begins working on this, really, a little after, you know, he's been working on this for a while. His friend, Greg Kernel comes to him and um, says, I got an idea, you know, something we can do together. Jack says, together? I don't know, huh? (laughs) And um, so the Victoria Hospital is uh, Greg's studio and home, is is just on the um, south side of the Thames Valley, Thames River Valley, um, and the hospital's on the north side. And um, so Greg said... uh, Look, Jack, what I'd like to do is that uh, each of us paint the Victoria Hospital in our own way, in my studio, back to back, so that we won't be influencing one another. And then when they're done, we'll attach them back to back and it'll be a work of art that'll go through time. So Jack said, oh, okay, I guess, I guess. And um, so this was in February of 69. Uh, of and... Um, Again, I can show you photographs in a minute around the corner. Um, so Jack goes up on Greg's roof of his uh, studio home and, you know, gets the image and starts working on the painting and then takes ill. And um, goes to a doctor. doctor says, oh, better hospital. Better get into this more deeply. So he goes to the Victoria Hospital. And the reason that they wanted to paint it was because it's, it's just so important in London, Right? And uh, his, one of his boys was, was uh, born there. He was born there. Um, um, Greg was born there. Sheila Kernel was born there. You know, so it just was really important that way. And uh, so he goes to the hospital. Leukemia. And he's given six months in 1969. He persevered and he got eight more years. But all of the work from 69 on is informed by that struggle. I don't think that diminishes the work in any way. You'll see it informs it in in the most incredible way. So once he gets on his feet again, he goes back to Greg's studio and uh, decides he can't do the back-to-back thing anymore, so he drags his home to his own studio, and over the next year, finishes it. So I look at it now, and uh, what a complex image, right? Knowing that, and it—I um, find it incredibly beautiful. And um, I mean, the light. Um, this is in a private collection. I've seen it in their home, and there's, it's near a window, and the light plays across it. And every time I go in, it's—it's um, it's a different—it's uh, a different painting. You know, this—this this bluish color here, gray color, just changes constantly. Just, just amazing. Um, I love the conifers here in the center which are so much about strength and pride and you know so on. At the same time, these aren't dead trees. This is just winter and they're very much alive still, aren't they? You really feel the the vibrancy in these trees. But there are moments also when I walk through and almost like a cancer in the, you know, in the middle of the image. You know. So it's, it's complex. Come on around the corner here. Sorry, to with the, with the, to You're gonna to have to take turns, I think, coming by here to see it. And don't sit down, we're not gonna stay here long. Um, but this is just, this is, um, these are the photographs that relate to the Victoria Hospital's uh, paintings. And uh, so here is Jack up on the roof of Greg's studio and uh, shoveling the snow out of the way first so he doesn't slip and fall and taking the photographs. Then that's the photograph that he finally chooses. And there he is working on it in Greg's studio. And this is Greg's painting. So you may know that one in the National Gallery, the great big painting of Victoria Hospital, a huge painting in Greg's style. And uh, so these two are, are, are m- matched together. Um, here's some wonderful photographs that um, Michael and Dache took. Michael and, and his wife at that time, Kim, were close friends to the chambers. And um, here's a nice little letter from Michael and photographs of all their kids together playing at, uh, at Port Stanley. This is um, when he came back from London, and, or back from Spain, as I was ex- talking about earlier. Um, when he went to Spain... Um, in, in 53, uh, 50, yeah, 53, he um, he left his paintings uh, with Ross Woodman, with his prof at, at UWO, and so when he came back, of course, Ross was the first person he called on, and Ross and his wife Marion, do any of you know Marion Woodman? Right, good for you. She's a world-renowned Jungian analyst, and. Um, um, Anyways, they commissioned a portrait and Jack did this incredible portrait of them um, in the style of the Spanish artists that he admired so much and uh, including some of the contemporary ones. He struggled constantly with the landscape of Spain and never did feel that he belonged or was comfortable with it and ends up dealing with it in this kind of surrealist fashion as you can see here. But then he, somebody was asking earlier about his, uh, how he made his living. and, and um, uh, he, he would do commissions, and I'll show you one in a minute. But in Madrid, uh, he did these tempera uh, paintings of the Castile landscapes. I think they're quite nice. And uh, he called these his uh, coffee and cakes paintings because he would sell them to tourists, and that's how he made his pocket money mm-hmm. while he was a student. And, uh, but they're quite something, aren't they? Then right over there on the far wall, you see that woman Um, So again, Jack being Jack, you know, he had his summers off because, you know, being at the art school. And um, so he would travel throughout Spain or he'd travel up in Europe and so on. And one one of the summers he decided he would uh, go to the UK. And so being Jack, he uh, writes a letter to Henry Moore. And uh, says, oh, Mr. Moore, uh, uh, could you use any help in the studio during the summer? And uh, Moore wrote back and said, "Uh, no, Mr. Chambers, but uh, my neighbor down the road could use some uh, help. And uh, so Jack sets off to the Midlands and uh, spent a summer there. And uh, the friend down the road, in fact, ran a little art school. So Jack ended up teaching classes in this art school. But he also sought commissions. And this is one of three that I know were done as uh, commissioned portraits uh, uh, at that point. And uh, again, quite interesting, I think, quite fascinating. Would this that is. Have been f- off a photo also? I'm sorry? Would that have been off a photo or a live sitting? Uh, a live sitting, yeah. Know. This is all before he's really working from photos. This is back in, in the 50s. And uh, here's a, 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 a landscape from the UK. These are three works. This is all place in here, right? So these are three works that were done. Um, when he was in high school. So these are Beale Tech Works. So these are from the mid-40s. And um, so these are his roots. Never guess he was a Canadian, eh? <laughs> right? And a uh, good old group of seven. And um, about the same time scenes in, in the city. And then very quickly, just over in the corner here, I mentioned to you before he traveled to India in '75 and in '77, and uh, so after he was diagnosed, uh, he did everything he possibly could. To, uh, there were two things that were paramount: one, is getting as much work done as he could, and two, putting the family on a sound footing. Okay, so he went after Av right away and said, "40 percent is too much." for you to take as a commission. And he and Av split. And Nancy Poole, who was a, a, a dealer in London, Ontario, took him on for 10%. And um, Nancy then opened a gallery in Toronto, and um, Jack got back in the Toronto scene, getting 10%, giving up 10% instead of 40%. And um, he also continued to seek commissions. Um, this, in fact, is a wonderful, wonderful painting here of Nancy and her daughter... in the the park uh, near Jack's home that was a commission. So no diminishment at all, right? But money coming in. And uh, he traveled extensively seeking treatment for the leukemia. Uh, He went to Boston, he went to New York, he went to Mexico, to Texas, he went to the UK, um, went to Germany on one occasion. And in 75, he goes to India to an ashram to seek a spiritual um, solution to the problem. And, um, and then goes back again in 77 to the same ashram. And uh, these are more of the drawings done on those, that 75 trip. And uh, so again, come back and spend some time with them. you see they're just suffused with this incredible complex layering. They're about place very much, but they're about spirit and so many other things. And, of course, light. As you can see. Spirit. Well, I'm going to ask you first of all to turn around and just look at these works. So these are, these are works that uh, were done in Spain and uh, very much about spirit, and um, so, th- so uh, this is called The Flying Saint, and this one's called Man and Dog. Um, Jack certainly, and you won't be surprised, knowing his history, struggled with depression, and um, common to so many creative people as well. And uh, for me, this is just kind of the perfect, um, if perfect is the word, image of, you know of that of that struggle, right? The dog that won't let you go, and, and um. but you can see again here. So uh, you know, this is these are these are from uh, 1960. So this is just before he gets into the real spangly uh, surrealist works in Spain and and uh, how he's drawing on all that tradition. Here's another one of these very early uh, self-portraits before he goes to Europe What's the halo? with the halo. Isn't that astounding? <laughs> he had a high opinion of himself. There's no question <laughs> of that. Guess. Yeah. But anyways, I was going to talk about this because this is the um, this is a critical painting, and I think an understanding Jack. It's just amazing, isn't it? I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't hear you. Oh, oh, okay. I'll pump it up. Uh, So this is called um, Lunch. It's one of the Sunday morning paintings, and um, we'll look at another couple of them before we're done. But um, this is the biggest one, and he began this in '69 just after his diagnosis and he never finished it so he kept working on it and working on it and working on it I remember visiting him and and seeing you know that he and then going back a couple of years later and it was still you know working away on it and we know from different people who talked to him one of the problems was that this is a Middle Eastern carpet and fussy 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 and of course Jack had to have it right and he could never get it right so he'd paint it and then he'd paint it over he'd paint it and he'd paint it over so that was one of the problems. And the other was that, you know remember the work that we looked at with the two boys, and we're going to look at another one around the corner here, crystalline, right? So the whole sense of light is just like crystal in the air. But by the end, if you'll just turn around, here's another Sunday morning painting. This was done, this is one of the last canvases, or last oils. Um, you can see how the interpretation of light has, has developed quite beyond that crystalline quality. The light suffuses and almost dissolves the form and the c- colour in the light begins to break down but then bloom, right? And uh, so very, very different. And so I think one of the things that was he was struggling with was that when he began this, they would have all been crystalline. And then they keep evolving. His, his perception evolves as he goes through. So it's back and fuss, back and fuss. You know, I'm trying to do it. Um, a lot of people have talked about this, of course, and, and uh, we've, we've put it in spirit because it so clearly is the, epitomizes his belief, and he stated this as a belief at one point, that the sort of central core of spiritual faith is the family. And um, so... Here we are, Sunday morning, but with the wine glasses on the table, Jack sitting here. It's almost like the Last Supper. There's even the empty chair from the Last Supper images. And um, some people have said, oh, God, he's painting himself as Christ. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. And um, so it's just this quite incredible, quite incredible, I found very, very moving and, and uh, endlessly engaging uh, image. If we could just dis-
0: uh, well again,
1: I suspect uh, I'm trying to remember what actually hung there, but almost all the works of art were Greg Kernos, and um, you'll see there's another one around on the other side here. I think he just you know didn't get it quite right mm-hmm. because of the light coming in, right? And just sort of, and again, his his, his ideas changing about it. And um, if we can go around the other side. His fam- this is yeah, that's his, Jack. That's, that's Jack. Jack. Oh, okay. and it's, I should also say thank you for the question <laughs> because it's the only painting in which he's presented himself as part of the family oh. unit as well. So it's, okay. I think, really important that way. Was the studio in his house or did he go outside somewhere? The studio, he, he, initially he had a studio downtown. Uh, but uh, well, from the early 70s on, um, it was the two-car garage of the bungalow. Okay, just, um, we're running out of time, too. So scoot around as fast as you can. So this is called Diego Sleeping, number two. And it's 1971, so it's fairly early along in the perceptual realist uh, paintings. And you can see what I'm talking about, that more crystalline quality. But even here, it's starting to dissolve a little bit, you know, the, with, the, with the quality of the light. A great kernel on the wall, of course. And um, this, during the day when you come in, the light just streams in here, and I really love it. And it, it's the one place where you see the paintings the way I think he wanted them to be seen, with the light playing across and ch- changing all the time. And um, I was in here one day and, and uh, looking at it, and there was a, a man standing over here looking at it. And we both stood there for minutes and minutes and minutes. And, and, uh, and, and all of a sudden, the man went, oh. And so I, I said, what? And he said, I didn't even notice the kid. <laughs> and uh, so it you know, had gotten so caught up in the whole painting. And, and, uh, but then finally got to the point where, oh, Oga on the phone back in the kitchen here. You know, know what's on the chair here? And oh, what's, it, you know, oh, <laughs> you know, there, there. So although it's called Diego Sleeping, Everything is so incredibly integrated, right? I mean, the image is just uh, a whole. And a lot of the paintings have two-thirds of the top, and one and
0: one
1: yeah, third of the, yeah. Top, I mean, the landscape. So yeah, very, very much so. Again, the, the light quality. I'm going to just slip back over here. Every time I install an exhibition... Um, <laughs> When it's finished, I uh, go away for the balance of the day, and then the next day I come in as though I hadn't seen it before, and walk through and try to you know get a sense of okay how are people going to understand this? And um, every now and again, when you do that, something, whoa, wow, does that ever work? And you hadn't planned it, and um, so you know you're doing it right, right when that happens. And uh, this was that moment for me in this exhibition. Um, standing here one day and uh, looking at the Sunday morning painting over there, the, the very late one, and then turning around. And these are the last works by Jack. And these grow from those late past- those pastels he did in Indian 77. And these are pastels. And they're images of, as you can see, trees and so on. I'm going to slip through. And um, But there, you can see the imagery. And I was very interested because um, I've done a lot of work on Lauren Harris and his abstractions. And Harris is very influenced by the fact that he was a theosophist. And um, there was a book by a theosophist called Thought Forms. And uh, it's it's illustrated. And so it's exploring the theosophical concept that every person and every object emanates an aura. Is the gauge of the spiritual content, and the thought form images were about that. And um, we don't know that Jack had that book, but when he was in India, um, where he was staying at the ashram, was quite close to the world headquarters of the Theosophical Society, and um, he had a little list of Theosophical books that we've got in the archives. The A.G.O. has in the archives here, and. Thought forms isn 't on it, but you know. um, but these tree images, particularly, and if you know early Lauren Harris abstractions, you know you see that there, and um, in thought forms, green that emanation is the highest level of spirituality, so we have figures here emanating, and then the, the branches and so on. But the other thing that fascinates me about these is where they're going. Right? And this one actually is called abstract painting. So I guess we can always say this when somebody leaves us too soon. What would you have done next? Right? I mean, given this. And to say that moment that day for me was standing here and looking at the last oil and then looking at the pastels and, of course, this was feeding off these and vice versa. You know, that breakdown, the dissolving of the form, the more abstract elements coming out in the color and so on. If you're correct in the Harris connection with these, is there also maybe on his mind that he Oh, he didn't know Harris's work at all, no. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. No, it's just that I okay. understood the theosophical connection potential because of my work on Harris. So, Parallel.
0: He's reversed. He's got two thirds content on the bottom now, and only one third. Yeah, yeah,
1: moving up. Yeah, top. yeah. Time, the last of the themes. So when he first gets back to London, and in, in, uh, this is 1962, so this is the you know the next year. Um, this is um, a painting that you can see draws on that style, the late Spanish style. So the the Slaughter of the Lamb um, painting, um, but the element of time comes into this because these are actually based on photographs of his mother's ancestors. So they're floating up in the, up in the heavens and, um, and then again you've got this incredible sense of popping seeds and fructification and you know just this amazing sense of, of rejuvenation, so that endless, endless cycle of birth and death and regeneration, but time in the sense of, of generational time. And I think you even pick it up at this one. This is another commissioned uh, work, uh, drawing in this case, but it's the uh, Harris family. And um, I don't think they'll mind me telling you, but um, they own the Victoria Hospital painting and have uh, always lived with it, and they're, they're very close friends of Jack's, and um, the mother and the three children. Come on around the corner here. When we first began, I was talking to you about um, the um, between the early Spanish or the late Spanish paintings and um, the silver paintings that there was this phase that he goes through in which he's very very engaged with the idea of time and their works here, as you can see. And um, so these are all from the uh, sort of early to mid this is 65, so just up to the mid 60s. And um, these are all uh, painted on panel, but again with this um, surface that's been uh, uh, texturized. And they're all like that, as you can see, to reflect the light in, in, in um, arbitrary ways. Uh, this is called Antonio and Miguel in the USA. And Antonio and Miguel were friends of Jack's in Madrid. And they came to North America for the first time. They didn't come to London, but they wrote to him and, um, from New York and other places they visited and sent photographs. And he's used those photographs to um, have them floating here. So there's something about the disembodied character of the heads and so on that, you know again, to me suggests time very strongly. And then the other thing that I find just amazing is that... Um, See these sort of saint-like figures floating here? Um, I have to confess that uh, I probably lived with this for more than like a year before noticing that, in fact, it's a swan. And, um, and not only that, but it's a swan all bunched up, and then it's the same swan with his head erect, and then the same head floating off into the distance. So it's that being like a stop action almost, right? quite amazing. He also, as he was at the end in Spain, was very much into making his own frames that were integral to the, uh, to the paintings. Behind you here, all things fall. So another one in, the, uh, in this, uh, these, this particular group. This is a bit earlier, this is 63, 64. And um, again, the texturing. Here again, ancestors. Right? Different generations. Each one of them are all different generations. Um, One of the great park-like areas north of London and this amazing, amazing sense of uh, constancy through generational change. This is the drawing for a big painting in the Museum London And again, here's the photograph, the family photograph that it was based on. So he started at this point using these photo images. Not that he'd taken himself, but that he'd found of ancestors. Here are the heads. The photograph from which he took the heads that float on the other side there. And here are just these amazing images here. This couple pulled out and then added to the ghost-like figures it just happens chance in this photograph here i love this drawing here again for a painting elsewhere but it's olga as the the northern princess you now transported from the south to the north and the bride the reindeer this is olga is a drawing for olga and mary visiting which again is a beautiful beautiful painting in museum london um, it's Mary Elodi. some of you may know from the Royal Ontario Museum, curator there. And Mary and her husband were very close to Jack and, and, and uh, his family, Jack and Olga. So it's when Olga was, was pregnant and um, the two of them visiting. And here again you can see you've got Mary, bing, bing, and you've got Olga, bing, bing, bing. You know, this is kind of like stop action time almost. So again, relating very much to the filmic process and and, and on those issues. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry. And um, you've got here um, Olga and Mrs. V, visiting Mrs. V. So the young mother and the ancestor again. So time. I think I've run out of steam. Um, This could go on and on and on, and uh, it's not going to, but uh, I did want to leave a couple of minutes if people had questions of any sort. Yeah.
0: Um, I I wanted to mention how much I personally appreciate the vision that has been realized in this collection. I, I realize it took a lot of work to put this together over two decades. And and I'm I'm am so, so thrilled with it.
1: Oh, you know. wonderful! Um, thank you. I,
0: I wanted to ask. We hear a lot about Jack Chambers and Greg mm-hmm. Um Was Jack also friendly with Patterson um, Patterson or was there a connection that way?
1: No, not not at all to that degree. No, no. Were,
0: were there are there artists who you would mention as other you know friends or influences?
1: I don't think there was anybody else who was as close as Greg was. So it was Greg and Jack were kind of the two seniors at that point. Um, there were, you know, younger artists at that point. So Murray Favreau and, and uh, Robert Fones mm-hmm. were, were... I don't
0: just mean locally, but internationally
1: as well. No. Were Jack's work wasn't known, yeah. right? And still isn't. Other than, through the, other than the film. Other questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how are they distinct from the other type of work? I'm sorry, which works are we talking about? What, which ones do you mean? Like that one is on acrylic and so is the one with Diego where he's, done, he's actually cast Diego in, in resin and there's other pieces. Okay, by acrylic, yeah, okay, those, those are those in fact Not are, paint, no, exactly paint. yeah, acrylic. yeah and what they are is again they were, they were a means of, of trying to produce income so they were, uh, these are, um, were actually uh, manufactured by Jack as um, what we at that point called multiples. And so limited editions, um, three-dimensional. So he's looking at um, Les Levine or uh, Ian Baxter or somebody like that and got the idea of the plastic molds and, um, and then produced them in editions of six or seven. And the same with, the, with the, uh, the tree painting there, I'm sorry, the bird painting there is meant to fun- function that way too. There's one around on the other side you can have a look at as well. That, uh, so these were all uh, a way, uh, yeah, multiples, a way of getting the work out um, in more volume so that he could have more income. But not diminished artistically at all. Yeah. He seems to have been really interested in philosophy. I, get, I asked the question of Bruce Elder last week at the film viewing, and Bruce said uh, that he was influenced very much by Neo neoplatonist and also Merleau-Ponty's. Right. Uh, you mentioned theosophy. How big a part of his life was philosophy? Philosophy? Yes. Oh, he was, he was uh, as I mentioned earlier, he was, he was very much an intellectual, and I think he was reading all the time, and he was writing all the time. And, in fact, he, had a, he, was, he was writing a major opus and, um, that uh, was meant to be an explanation of perceptualism. And, uh, and it's called Red and Green. And uh, so the manuscript exists. And actually... Um, Is that available? It's, uh, no, it's not. But uh, um, Tom Smart, mm-hmm. who was, used to be the director of the McMichael, um, was a student of mine at U of T back many, many years ago, in the late 80s, mid-80s. And did a fill M. with me on Chambers, and uh, and he's never let go. And uh, so he's bringing out an edition of Red and Green. So that will bring the text to us. Uh, um, the manuscript is in the in the uh, archive here, but uh, it's almost unreadable. It is so <laughs> dense. It is so dense and convoluted. And you know, rah, 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 rah. you can read some of the manuscript stuff you see there, and you'll see. I mean, Jack just got into it to such a degree, and it just was, you know, the kind of level of detail you see in the paintings, that's how he wrote. <laughs> he was writing for himself. Really. He didn't believe so. Oh, I see. Oh, uh, no, 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 he himself. didn't believe so. But you could say that about the paintings, too, in a, in a, a certain way, right? I mean, it, you know, he, he didn't see any difference between the two modes. Yeah. I also noticed poetry. Yeah. He wrote poetry as well, yeah. And he was a very good friend of James Rene and in London and uh, did illustrations for one of uh, James' uh, books. And, um, yeah, you know, very, very involved in all the, all the art scenes. Uh, very, a kind of a central figure in a, in, in a cultural sphere in London that was emerging at that point. Very engaged. One of the founders of the Forest City Gallery and, you know, all of that, the Cooperative Gallery, all that kind of stuff. I haven't, but uh, that's a good point. And and, um, and again, so very, very concerned that artists um, be able to make a living from their work, right? And because of his particular predicament, being most concerned about that. So in the 60s, he starts this thing uh, called, uh, ends up being called CAR, Canadian Artist's Representation. And uh, it was triggered by um, a letter from the head of education at the National Gallery Um, The National Gallery put on this big centennial exhibition in 67 and and, um, um, wanted to make slide sets, uh, you know, uh, diapositives of uh, of, uh, all of the works in the exhibition and then then sell those and um, wanted to get a waiver on the the, uh, reproduction rights and so wrote to all the artists. And Jack was just outraged when this letter landed in his desk. And so he got everybody together and they <laughs> fought it, and uh, they foamed, formed Carr. And uh, Car has been with us ever since. So now artists, you know, when there's an exhibition, artists get uh, exhibition fees, uh, they get uh, uh, reproduction rights and so on. And that's all because of Jack. Yeah? The way this exhibition is set up, you can come in from there, you can come in from there. Yep. Does it matter? No. It set up so you can go left or right? Yep, or all over? there's no direction. The only the only exception to that, I would argue, I guess, is that I think it is helpful if you spend time in that first space, and and understand the different periods, but not critical, you know, not not critical to your enjoyment. I like to think that this is an exhibition you could you could go through in 20 minutes, and just you know just doing the keystones or the big things and come out enriched, or you could spend a whole week in here, right, going through all this stuff and reading all the stuff and. You'll notice that there are little machines around and some wonderful audio, some wonderful uh, 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 footage and I really encourage you to come back and spend some more time with it. And a whopper of a catalogue.
0: Okay? <laughs> Did you mention so, that before? <laughs> I don't know if I have. Eh? <laughs>
1: um, and I should say that, that um, the, the way the, the, way the catalogue is organized is I've written an overview and then there's a different author for each of the themes. So it's Sarah Milroy writing on light. It's Ross Woodman writing on place. Um, it's uh, Gillian McKay writing on spirit. And it's um, um, Chris Dudney writing on, ti- on time. And they're beautiful, beautiful essays. And And with a, v- a very, very extensive chronology. You know, this really uh, has all the exhibitions and, you know, story of his life in a chronological form. And it's meant to be, as I said earlier, the go-to source on, on Jack into the future.
0: I think at this point, I would like to thank you. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for the exhibition. Ah,
1: okay. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at agio.net slash talks.